From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. A tremendous Thursday to each and every one of you. Thanks so much for tuning in to EWTN's Open Line. Dominican Father Brian Milady is in the house. If you've got a question for Father Milady, pick up one of these open phone lines at 833-288-EWTN. Just dial 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is one 205 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program. Your call screener is Matt Gubensky and Ace McKay taking care of our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And our host, as he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady, how are you? Just fine, thank you. So you're you're on vacation with the Dominican Sisters in Los Angeles. Do uh, like at uh, places like Franciscan University? Do you when you stroll the grounds? Do do you have to say "Man on the floor"? Yeah. Well, actually, I'm with the Carmelite Sisters. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, there you go. In Alhambra, Sacred Heart Retreat House in Alhambra. Yeah. Beautiful. Um. Yeah. That's right. So apparently, uh, Saint Dominic had a family, huh? He did, like everybody else. But uh, I wanted to talk partially about the founder because August 8th is his feast day. And because a lot of people don't know a great deal about St. Dominic. They know a great deal about St. Francis. But they know very little about St. Dominic. In fact, St. Dominic never really left anything in writing. Unlike St. Francis, you know, who have, from whom we have a number of letters. St. Dominic came from a very holy family. Now, his father was a Castilian knight to Spain. But his mother, Blessed Jane Daza, was a blessed. And interestingly enough, so was his brother, Blessed Manes, who eventually entered our uh, the order after St. Dominic founded. Jane Daza had a very interesting experience when she was pregnant with St. Dominic, she had a dream. And in this dream, she saw a black and white dog with a torch in its mouth, setting the world on fire. So of course she woke up and punched her husband and said, I just had this interesting dream about our boy. <laughs> Have you any idea what this dream might mean? <laughs> And so the idea is, of course, and if many of you may have seen this in statues of St. Dominic or paintings of him, and wondered why on earth the dog was there, the pooch. And uh, it's because there's a play on Latin on uh, Dominican and pounds of the Lord, uh, Dominicani, Dominicana, 
And so the Dominicans were to be like the hounds of the Lord setting the world on fire with charity. That's why the torch and putting the wolves of heresy to flight. In fact, there's a beautiful painting in, uh, I believe it's Santa Maria Novella in Florence by Ocaña, which is the triumph of St. Thomas. But as a part of this painting, you can see the black and white dogs attacking the wolves of heresy. So our order was founded, as you know, to teach the truth, was founded to answer the Albigensian heresy. But the founder is little known, and the reason is because he shunned the limelight. In fact, he tried to resign as soon as possible as superior of this order. And there's a question about whether he even wanted to found an order to begin with. Remember, he was a canon of the uh, canons of Osma in Spain, and these were like uh, Norbertines are today. They were canons of St. Augustine. And he and his bishop, because he was prior of the community, were sent on a diplomatic mission by the King of Spain to Denmark to arrange a marriage. And while they were on their way, they passed through southern France and were horrified at this heresy, the Albigensian heresy, which basically held that spirit was good and matter was evil. And on the way back, the bishop, Diego and St. Dominic, decided to stay in France to preach against the heretics. And they also adopted poverty, strict poverty, because the uh, Albigensian holy men lived a very poor life. And when the Catholics sent their missionaries against them, they sent the Cistercians who arrived with their retinues of servants and their silver plate and all this business. And the Albigenses wouldn't listen to them. So that's why they, like the Franciscans, adopted a mendicant lifestyle of being poor and begging. St. Dominic converted very few people, and Bishop Diego eventually went back to Spain. However, he did convert a number of people who were women, and in those days, if you weren't in a convent and you weren't married, you were kind of, you know, thrown out by your family. So he wrote this sort of rule that's a combination of the Augustinian rule, adapted for priests, but also for women, because it's very elastic. It's only 12 pages long. And so the nuns at Pruy in France were the first founded, which, of course, they never let us forget. Later, the Pope thought this was such a good idea to preach the truth, mendicancy, all these things. And he had a great respect for St. Dominic that he uh, asked him, wanted to be made into an order. And so St. Dominic beautifully took the constitutions and the rule he had written or the nuns and adapted it to the priests and that's the origin of the early order. Now, this a person does this, obviously, because they're inspired to do so by God. 
But I'm sure his formation in his household, even when he's a child with his mother, because if any of you have ever been to his birthplace, Calorega, it really is the land of rocks and saints up there in Castile, because there's nothing there, basically, except this little village. And everything else is the arid plain of Castile. Uh, he um, must have imbibed the virtues of his mother, and he and his brother lived those things throughout all their life. So on the Feast of St. Dominic, when you recall to mind the importance and primacy of the truth, first of all, but secondly, we need to also recall the importance and primacy of the Catholic religion and that it's seen in family life and it's most poignant, I would say, and um, honest representation as far as nature is concerned, religious life, of course, being exceptional. And that to be a member of the family, much like St. Therese was with her parents, where your mother is a, a saint, basically, and your brother is a saint, is a great testimony to the witness of the virtues of grace. 833-288-EWTN, that's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. I have some St. Dominic socks that have a picture of the saint. They have uh, a, a rosary, which you would expect, and a dog with a torch in his mouth. And now right. I understand. Yeah, the, the the dog with the torch eludes a lot of people. And then, of course, we had a pastor who remodeled one of our churches. And he was Italian in extraction and visited Sicily and seen this altarpiece with dogs on the altar. So he liked dogs. <laughs> so every single uh, stained glass window, except the Sorrowful Mysteries, one of the old priests managed to put enough opposition to having the Sorrowful Mysteries where you have a little pooch in every stained glass window. So um, you wouldn't understand that, though, if you didn't know about the vision. And, of course, it's a little, it suffers a little in the translation because there's no torch. And, but the torch is very important. 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mulady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. It's Thursday. That means the world over with Raymond Arroyo. Don't miss the latest political and cultural reporting and analysis on topics of interest to Catholics and people of faith on the world over with Raymond Arroyo. And you can get news from the world over in your email inbox every week. Sign up today. Visit EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still a couple of open lines for you and plenty of time for your calls at 833 288 
888-900-3986. First up today is Jan in Denver, Colorado, listening on Catholic Radio Network. Jan, you are on with Father Brian Mullady. Well, hello. I just I was pondering the other day when I after reading uh, Bible, I, I do a Bible study every morning, and and I, I started to think about all the angels and saints that we we look at that are always glorifying and singing, praising God in heaven. And I wondered if part of that, maybe quite a bit of that, is that during the universe, where Mass has said universe, you know, throughout the universe, throughout the world at various times throughout the day there's a mass going on even if it's just a priest uh who has to do it daily as well and because we're worshiping and we're joining with heaven during the holy mass is that possible part of the reason why they're perpetually praising god no i didn't quite get the whole thing uh, you mean uh, a priest even a priest that doesn't have a server and things well what uh-huh. i'm saying is that that we're all praying when we're when we're in the mass. Just let's talk about the mass that is going on uh, throughout the world, right? At at any given time, there's a mass being said. Oh, it's going on. And yes, so are we? Also, because we're. But it's also going on in heaven, continuously. So remember, it's our Lord from heaven that becomes present on the altar. So since He becomes present on the altar. The sanctuary for a short time becomes heaven on earth, and that includes all those who are in heaven, as you say, the saints and the angels, continuously praising God. It's one of the reasons why uh, you're never alone when you say Mass, even if there's no server, no congregant present, because all the saints and angels are present at every Mass. Does that help, Jan? that help, Jan? Yes, it does. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate the phone call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next stop is Bay City, Michigan. Rick is listening on Ave Maria Radio Online. Rick, welcome to the program. You're on with Father Milady. Hello. Uh, I have a question about uh, Matthew thirteen forty-four, which is the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. And, and I see a lot of problems with this uh, parable. It's a, there's a man searching for a treasure in a field. Now, historically, if people had anything of value, they would they didn't have a bank to or a safety deposit box to put it in. They would bury it in the ground. So this man finds he's searching on property that doesn't belong to him, and he finds a treasure that doesn't belong to him. And he he he's he seems to be exhibiting a lot of covetousness because he wants that treasure. So um, he sells all he has. He goes and buys the field uh, from the owner, and he seems to not pay the uh, the fair price for the field. Um, and uh, and so there's there's a lot of greed and covetousness and deception going on in here. And I don't know how to pull this out of the fire and find something redeeming uh, to that uh, to that picture. It's just a very negative picture. Um, that that's uh, we don't buy the kingdom of heaven. We don't buy wisdom uh, by defrauding people of anything. So how how can we uh, turn this around? 
Well, first of all, you can turn it around by realizing it's a parable. Um, you're not buying the kingdom of heaven. That's the whole point. You, you found the one great, a treasure so great that um, you can't buy it. You can buy the field, but the treasure is the heaven. It's basically the infinity of God. And the emphasis of the parable is not on who owns it. The emphasis of the parable is on its unexpected character, for one thing. Um, I remember I used to have a professor who would talk about, in philosophy, finding, knowing the existence of God. And he'd say, well, a person goes in to the world of nature to try to discover the meaning of nature. And like a man goes into a field to dig a grave and finds a treasure, he stumbles on the truth without looking for it, namely that there's an infinite being. And that this uh, truth that he stumbled on is, uh, although it's true that things lead them to that, he doesn't know that himself until he actually discovers it. So we're talking here about number one, the character of discovery of the truth. Secondly, about what the value of the truth is, that it's the greatest truth, greatest treasure that could possibly exist. And it has nothing to do with uh, trying to defraud someone of money or anything like that. It has to do with the fact that you've come upon the one um, like the pearl of great price, it's the same idea. Unexpectedly, on the one thing that will satisfy all longing, and this is, of course, the kingdom of heaven. Thanks, Rick. We appreciate the call today. That frees up a line for you at 833-288-EWTN. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. James is a first-time caller. He's in Cleveland, Ohio, watching us on YouTube today. James, you're on with Father Milady. Yeah, hi, Father. I have a question, a moral theology question, and uh, I was wondering, would it be a moral act or an immoral act for governmental leaders to fund foreign wars or, you know, depose rulers or provide weapons to foreign powers? Would that be... Immoral or immoral act? Well, it depends on if the war is moral or immoral. If the war is moral and it's done by treaty, and it's not a matter of extortion or anything, then it would be a moral act. If the war is immoral, then it wouldn't be a moral act. And remember, there's such a thing as a just war and an unjust war. In other words, it depends on what you're, you're financing and funding, what its moral character is. And, of course, if the war is moral, that normally involves people in a kind of self-defense in their culture and things. And so you'd be helping them with that. Is that helpful, James? Yeah, yeah, thank you. You're very welcome. We appreciate the call today. Some wide-open phone lines for you today at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Next stop is Seattle, Washington. Vanessa is a first-time caller listening on Sacred Heart Radio. 
Vanessa, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hi, Father Brian Milady. Um, I was wondering if you know anything about the Saint Josephine Bakita. Joseph. Josephine Bakita. Oh, Bakita. Oh, okay. Uh, only that she was a slave at one time, and she was brought, I believe, to Italy by the family who uh, enslaved her. And, in, and, of course, in Italy, they were, she was freed because they didn't practice slavery there. And that um, she eventually became a paragon of the virtues and things like that. That's the only thing I know about her off the top of my head. I'd have to read her life a bit more to and say she, more. Uh, she entered religious life after being freed. Yes, I believe so, yes. Yeah. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Right. Thanks, Vanessa. We appreciate the call today, and we'll ask for St. Josephine Bakita's intercession. We have a granddaughter who is, uh, her name is under her patronage, and we pray for her intercession on a regular basis. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Duncan writes in, and he says, What is total depravity? And how can I speak to my Calvinist friend about this? Well, I don't really—I I don't really know what total depravity is you're referring to. If you mean the fact that human nature, by man by nature, is totally depraved, uh, what they mean there is that, as Luther used to say, all that's not from grace is sin, and. Uh, there's no way we can save ourselves from sin, uh, and only Christ can save us from sin. And his salvation from sin means merely overlooking our evil, but it doesn't make us good. And for that reason, the Calvinists are especially uh, um, critical and look with great uh, disdain on human nature itself. In fact, uh, for them, the government was founded basically to diminish the influence of the evil of human beings because there was no way you could make them good. And in fact, they treated people like children in school. Well, the attitude would be, um, I'm going to make you a decent God-fearing Christian if I have to break every bone in your body to do it. Um, or as maybe this will help too, in the novel Jane Eyre, if you remember, she gets sent to a very severe Protestant boarding school. And as the headmaster is checking the girls to see if they're properly dressed as Christians, he comes on her little friend and he says, what is this? This girl's hair is in curls. This is not Christian. It's ostentatious. And so the matron says, but sir, her hair is naturally curly. And he says, I will have no nature. Grace destroys nature. And then they take the uh, scissors and cut off all her curls. So she won't, won't have uh, nature intruding on her supposed desire for goodness, which basically involves God making you good and not you. Everything is always looked on from sin, not from virtue. Uh, sin is something, of course, we do have to be very concerned about. But we're mostly concerned about it because it keeps us from becoming virtuous. 
833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. It is a free telephone call anywhere in the United States and Canada. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. And you can always send us an email. That email address is openline at EWTN.com. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Several open phone lines for you at 833-288-3986. Michelle is watching us on YouTube, Father, and she wants to know if we're committing a sin if we don't cover our heads. Are head coverings required at Mass or any time that you enter a church? Well, they used to be, but they're not anymore. Uh, I can remember when I was a child in the 50s, women wouldn't go into church if they didn't have a head covering. And, of course, the the famous thing was a bobby pin and a piece of Kleenex. Yeah. <laughs> that, was the, that was the improvised head covering if you wanted to go in. And I remember one time my mother was supposed to pick me up and, perpetual adoration she wanted to, t- to surprise me with something which was going to be rather nice but unfortunately the person after me didn't show up and she didn't have a head covering so she didn't come in to tell me she was out there or take me out <laughs> so i missed something really good because of that but uh, so how, no, is that, not actually, how is that not part of the patriarchal oppression of the church <laughs> Well, St. Paul says we, women should keep their heads covered in church. Uh, but it's just um, a custom, a custom of respect. Um, in, uh, in former times, men used to wear their hats as a kind of respect, and afterwards they used to take them off. I find it glaring because of the place where I am now, and that uh, I often eat in restaurants. And they're, sure, they're popular restaurants, there are all these guys sitting there with ball caps on. And I keep thinking, wait a minute, I always take my hat off when I'm inside. That's what you're supposed to do. But that's because of the custom of the time. And a similar thing was true in in church. Yeah, very good. Thanks, Michelle. We appreciate that question today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833 2883986 Marilyn wants to know if while we sleep do our souls sleep well, our souls aren't physical so they don't sleep but since they need the body to act um they do act especially the imagination and things like that so I wouldn't say they were asleep but they don't act in a, in a rational way. In other words, as if the body was awake to give it proper input. What we do is, for example, in sleep, uh, the images that we've gotten during our lives from whatever source, we compose and divide. And we produce things by our imagination which don't actually exist in reality. 
And sometimes it's hard to tell the difference between a waking state and a sleeping state. Maybe some of you some of you had the experience where you wake up and you think you've experienced something, and you say, "Wait a minute, it's a dream." <laughs> Good, I could change the subject. <laughs> it's not real. So, uh, yes, I would say our souls don't sleep, but they don't act the same way they do when we're in a waking state. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Rose wants to know how she can explain to her son that God did not create hell. Well, first of all, hell is a state that's created by the people themselves, which includes, of course, the persons of the angels. And it's basically a state in which a person has decided against seeing God, know that they're supposed to see God, and so it's against seeing God because morally they refuse to conform themselves to what they know to be necessary for them to see God. So hell is basically a condition in which nature and uh, freedom, morals, disagree, and disagree forever and will never be changed. And that's a total frustration of the person's interior potentials. And so they basically live in a completely frustrated state. And all God does is, he says, okay, you wanna live with yourself for eternity? That's it. (laughs) You could choose me or self, one or the other, not both. And uh, uh, Satan was the first great person to say, I will, I will choose you, but I won't serve you. And for that reason, God said, okay, you chose yourself. That's what you're stuck with for all eternity. So um, also, I'm not sure the doctrine of hell. The doctrine of hell is a very sophisticated doctrine. I, it, it certainly exists, but... Um, it's more matter for people who are a little older and can understand it better. Uh, all we know is to know, it's not, we can explain to little children that it's not to be with God. But I remember I heard of one educator in a Catholic school who drove a second grader crazy. And uh, I said, well, what did you do? She said, well, I just told him what a Jesuit told us on retreat about the pains of hell. And I said, well, that's, that's not matter for the second grade. <laughs> because all they do is interpret it from a level of fear, you know, and of unreasoning fear, too. So uh, I think hell is something where you can mention it if you want. But it's best not to dwell on it for children until they reach the age of, well, puberty especially is when they first can begin to appreciate it. 833-288-EWTN. That's our toll-free number. Grab one of these open phone lines at 833-288-3986. Charles writes in, In Marian apparitions, is she present in the same way as the resurrected Jesus appeared to the disciples? I would say not necessarily. Um, Since it's an apparition, it's more in our apprehending of it than in what Mary presents to us. So, um, 
she doesn't necessarily uh, come before them with her risen body, but they do have a perception of her. It's one of the reasons why in all the cultures, as you know, the apparitions are different because we're a, a great part of it is from our point of view. I'm not saying there's nothing there, but I'm saying Mary represents herself depending on what culture. So Guadalupe would be different than Nak, and, and that would be different from um, the Lord. As you know, she's dressed differently. She shows different mannerisms, all those things. In fact, in Guadalupe's case, it's very interesting that you can actually see the bishop in the eyes on the tilma. See what, you know, when uh, the roses drop from the Juan Diego's tilma. And also that she's dressed, even though she's uh, basically an Aztec woman or an Indian woman in Mexico, she's basically dressed in the way a Hebrew woman would be dressed of her age. And that's not true in Lord. Lord, as you know, she dresses in a white uh, uh, tunic with a, a, I think it's a, a blue sash and that sort of thing. And it's very, it's somewhat different also than Fatima or many of the other Marian apparitions. And I would assume that in the um, Far East, when she appears, like in Japan, she appears more Japanese. So I would say uh, it's not exactly the same as the risen body, but it would be um, partially in our apprehension of it, depending on what we expect Mary to look like. She adapts herself to that. Still, uh, excuse me, still time for your phone calls at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Sean is in Charleston, South Carolina, listening on Catholic Radio in South Carolina. Carolina, rather. Sean, thanks so much for holding. Welcome to the program. Uh, thank you. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Father. Uh, my question is, in reading uh, uh, stories in the National Catholic Register and, and other uh, major Catholic publications and, and uh, columns and podcasts about the current World Youth Day, why, why would the uh, organizers of it, particularly the new cardinal in Portugal, have such a, uh, a lukewarm objective of not preaching Catholicism at it? And he, he stated, the, the cardinal there for some reason stated, he, they're not going to want to bring people to the Catholic Church. And apparently it bothered Bishop Barron so much that Bishop Barron said, well, when I speak at the World uh, Youth uh, Day, uh, the cardinal can be rest assured that I am very much going to address Catholicism to bring souls to Christ through the Catholic Church. Why, why would the, the organizers not take uh, a very clear, positive stand like the Bishop Barron has. Well, you'd have to ask them. <laughs> I really don't know. Um, I wouldn't uh, take a stand like that. But a person like that shouldn't be a cardinal to begin with uh, because they, they don't support our religion that much. And, you know, even Bishop Barron's had his issues uh, he considered Martin Luther a saint of grace. He gave a talk where he said that. So that's strange to me. Um, 
there's all kinds of strange things that are said today by people, and especially people who are promoted to the hierarchy. Um, I must admit, it's not the hierarchy I knew when I grew up. Uh, many of them were builders. They weren't thinkers necessarily. But they certainly would not have uh, actively discouraged people from joining the Catholic Church. That become I, I, I don't really know why the bishop and the organizers do, but the whole tendency to make Catholicism uh, just one form, I could, you could say, of uh, the expression of supernatural faith comes basically from Karl Rahner, who thought that even atheists were Christians because they were thinking about ultimate things, which in my opinion is ridiculous. But Karl Rahner was a theologian during Vatican II. He was very famous. He was a Jesuit. He influenced Jesuit thinking a lot. And uh, many, many people that I've known in the theological establishment think that if you don't agree with Karl Rahner, you're basically an idiot. And they won't uh, even discuss it with you. And that's just not right. So I, I would think part of the influence comes from the fact that many of these people were formed in their thinking by people who, if they weren't a part of the late 60s and 70s, certainly were taught by people who were. And I don't know if you have this experience, but at least for many academics in higher academia, they have a tendency to just mouth whatever their professor told them without thinking it through deeply. Thank you so much, Sean. We appreciate the phone call. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. Be sure to join us for The Doctor is In tomorrow afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern. It's Look Back Friday. Dr. Ray visits calls from previous shows and adds some additional insights. That's Look Back Friday on The Doctor is In tomorrow afternoon at 1 p.m. Eastern time with Dr. Ray Garendi right here on EWTN Radio. Lorraine is up next. She is in Chicago, Illinois, watching EWTN television. Lorraine, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Yes, hello. I wanted to know, what is the difference between the bishop and the cardinal? Oh, a bishop and a cardinal, did you say? Yes. yes. Okay, well, first of all, cardinals are not instituted by Christ. They're church offices. And their origin originally comes from the Roman families who chose the Bishop of Rome. And they don't necessarily have to be even clerics. Now, since Vatican II, uh, the Pope made a requirement that a cardinal be a, a priest. But they didn't have to be priests for a long time. It's an honorary title, and it's only... Uh, um, ability is that you can elect Pope. Christ, the bishops, on the other hand, are orders. They're instituted by Christ. They exercise a kind of jurisdiction over our faith as a whole. However, the only bishop that has a right to speak for all the bishops is the Bishop of Rome. All the other bishops speak only for their own diocese, 
but they were instituted by Christ. They're a sacrament, and they do exercise the priestly ministry. The cardinal uh, is not a sacrament, and as I say, it's an honorary title of the Church of Rome, and it has to do with an elector in the Church of Rome of the Pope. Now, because they're such important uh, people, usually, they have also been used in diplomatic sense or in an official sense to carry on a good bit of the bureaucratic um, day-to-day workings of the church. But they have no jurisdiction at all um, unless it's given to them by the Pope over anyone because Cardinal is not instituted by crime, it's instituted by the church. Thanks so much, Lorraine. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. 833-288-3986. Gary wants to know, was Jesus created a sinner like us? Did the Old Testament saints have to be baptized before they went to heaven? Well... The baptism of the Old Testament saints is circumcision. That, that's an imperfect form, but it makes a person a member of Israel. And if, depending on their faith in the future Messiah, they go to heaven. And they're enumerated in Hebrews, I believe it is, chapter 10, many of them. On the other hand, baptism makes everyone in the New Testament capable of heaven, and um, I don't remember the first part of the question. I got distracted a bit. But, uh, was Jesus created a sinner like us? Oh, yeah, absolutely not. He was, however, created with some of the, uh, he chose some of the effects of original sin so that he could injustice atone for it, but these were the non-moral effects so things like suffering and death are a result of original sin. Christ chose suffering and death, but he in no sense could uh, choose sin as far as morals is concerned. Because for one thing, part of his atonement is to perfectly obey in our place, and that would compromise his perfect obedience, his mission. When Christ entered the world, he chose to assume from human nature, whatever would advance his mission. The classy two-bit theological word for this is, uh, which comes from Greek, and it isn't the same as your household economy, is he chose this economically. In other words, whatever would promote his mission, he chose. Sin would have been detrimental to his mission. Um, next up is Selena. She is a first-time caller in Hondo, Texas, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Selena, you're on with Father Milady. Hi, Father Milady. I want to know if we should kneel when we, before the beginning of Mass. We walk in, we genuflect, enter our pew, and then should we kneel? I didn't get the last word. Kneel. Kneel. Yes. Kneel. Okay. Uh, well, you can't kneel if you're walking, obviously. Uh, why, why would you kneel but before that? She's wondering, that? once you genuflect, you enter your pew, and you're in your place, at that point before Mass, should you kneel? 
you may, but it's not necessary. Very good. Thanks, Selena. We appreciate it. We hope that helps you and the kids out. 833-288-EWTN. Still could squeeze a call or two in at 833-288-3986. Daniel's a first-time caller in the great state of Missouri, listening on Covenant Radio. Daniel, you are on with Father Brian Milady. Hey, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just have a quick question. I was listening to an, a, pro, a program a couple weeks ago, and there was kind of a conflicting of my understanding here because a caller had called in. She had a couple of teenage kids, um, and she was calling, asking how to explain to them how it's important not to work on the Sunday, the Sabbath. But the Sabbath is actually sundown Friday to sundown Saturday. But the priest at the time didn't actually explain that to her. He just went along with not to work on Sunday and so forth. So I'm, I'm, there's just a little bit of conflict there. Is it the Catholic Church in agreement that the that the actual Sabbath is on sundown Friday to sundown Saturday? I don't think there's any legal. Uh, when you're talking about the commandment against work, against labor, I don't think there's any particular interpretation. I think it just means Sunday. Yes. If you're talking about the ability to celebrate Mass um, on the Sabbath, uh, which makes you keep holy the Sabbath as an obligation, we do recognize evening Masses on Saturday. So um, it would, it, well, it depends on what the evening is. I've known some pastors to try to push it to three o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> you never know sometimes today. But. It would um, would definitely be uh, considered uh, Saturday evening to Sunday evening. Now, uh, uh, yeah, that's what you asked me. Uh, I don't think regarding the commandment for uh, rest that that includes that particular legal distinction. I think it's talking period, um, unlike. It's present often in the Jewish religion, where you have to have everything done the evening before. Um, no, we don't recognize that way of looking at things. It's not Christian, for one thing. Um, the commandment to keep holy the Sabbath is primarily observed in Sunday Mass. And uh, you know, of course, we did change it from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So now we recognize that the Sabbath Sunday is that's the day the Lord rose from the dead. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Um, Kaylee wants to know, since babies that have been baptized no longer have sin, why would God punish them and give them diseases that they may not recover from? Well, why does God punish anyone? Uh, the punishment is general. The fact that you're able to contract uh, a disease without God's um, protection. In other words, he withdraws his protection from you in this regard. Uh, it's just natural. Uh, it's true that, that uh, suffering and death were caused by the original sin, 
But everybody who's baptized doesn't get back the ability not to experience suffering and death. We all do. It's an effect left to us after the original sin. So that would be true of babies also. But the point is they don't they go to heaven. That's the point. And we head next to Houston, Texas. Um, Hui Ling Lee is in Houston, uh, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Um, Hui Ling, you're on with Father Brian Malady. Good afternoon, Father Brian McLady. Thank you very much for taking my call. You're welcome. What's your question today? My my question is that um, when a person nearly die, or they they in the coma state, their body is not functioning anymore. But we usually uh, ask the priest to come to do the anointing the sick, or the people gather around the the, the bed to prayer. So my question is that isn't at that time we we fight for our soul or our soul is the one that's gonna like the demon or the Satan try to take over that's why we need all this support prayer around the, the, the dying person well, all right I didn't understand half of it what what did she, well, basically what she really yeah basically out? she's wondering are we are we spiritually vulnerable uh, as we're reaching the end of life, is that why we uh, stress the importance of being prayed for in that moment? It's spiritually and physically, of course. So uh, you're assaulted, basically, uh, physically. You also have a tendency to lose hope and things like that. So we need the strengthening of our spirits in order to get through whatever the illness is, whether it's to recovery or, God forbid, but it might end in death, too. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? In the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mullady, producer Michael McCall, call screener Matt Kubensky, and our social media maven, Mr. Ace McKay, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with Colin Donovan. Until then, God bless.